Sherry, here is an indisputable fact about book publishing that I had no idea about, even as recently as just a couple of years ago. What's that fact? You don't write a book to make money. Oh, that's true. Did you know that? Uh, I kind of knew that, a little bit. Yeah? Like, I didn't think it was like, you know, you weren't going to be like Stephen King. See, you know, but... I always thought that was just the optimist versus pessimist yin and yang that you and I have in our relationship. I've just, always... Yeah. So when you, when you, you know, maybe expressed that true opinion and feeling, I was like, oh, she's just, she's just well, we more just, negative than I am. Well, we just have somebody in our neighbor, a couple people in our neighborhood that, and one person that we know that is an author and... Yeah. I know they didn't move out of their home when her first book sold, so I figured that it probably isn't as lucrative as... You know. Well, I didn't know well, that. Even if you told hard. me it, I didn't know it. But I know it now. And I've known it for a couple of years. I've had enough people tell me how it really works to not to know the truth now. In fact, one person described it as, you've got to look at your book like it's a really expensive business card. Mm. And I really like that. I think That's about a, that all the time. Yeah. You know, if you want people to take you seriously... You have to have a book published. If you want to get interviewed places, if you want to have a seat at the table for the big boy discussion, mm. big boy and big girl discussion, you have to you have to have a book published. And that has proven to be true. But the whole reason I bring that up is because even though I know that writing a book is not a wildly lucrative thing, I mean... Yeah, if you're Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, then like that's a different stratosphere, right? When you're selling yeah. millions of books, then you're making money. But when you're selling thousands of books, you're you know covering your expenses. And yes, it's nice to get a little royalty check in the mail, but it's you know it it's not it's not quit my job and as you said, move into a bigger house yeah. category. But so I always feel guilty when I try to promote our book. And then I get like mad at myself for feeling guilty about promoting the book because again, and this whole preamble I'm giving right now is like to, to justify to, the promotion to, of the yeah, book on this podcast. <laughs> to deal with my guilt. But I don't want people to hear us and be like, oh, they're just trying to sell their thing again. They're just trying to sell their thing again. Here's the deal. We have all kinds of questions that come our way all kinds of emails and conversations that we have. And I know that the answers to the dilemma and the situation the person is in, it's in our book. And so I always feel bad. Oh, well, if, if you'd like help with that, you could read our book. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like that person's like, oh, they're just, you know, this person doesn't really care about me or care about recovery or care about the loved ones of alcoholics or care about alcoholics. They just care about making money. So I, I do, I do want to like constantly justify this isn't about making money this is about spreading the message and also you know we took all this time to write all this stuff down and get it edited and and get it published and there's a lot of mechanics that go into that and it's a grueling process honestly so since we already wrote it and put it in this nice bound format if you want to you know if you want the answers to some of these questions 
why don't you look there rather than me? Now, I don't want to discourage anyone from right. reaching out ever. I, right. I mean, the point of this book, along with a lot of other self-help books, are to be helpful and that you can refer to sort of like a reference book. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it's different than like, I feel like, than a, a pleasure you know, leisure kind of book that you're promoting. So, hey, now I've got some good jokes in there. There's some good zingers. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> so, yes, but no, you're right. It's not a pleasure book. You're not going you know, so to sit down and to try do to get lost your in ego, fantasy. Yeah, you know. yeah. So, so I'm. You know, one of the things that you've got to be really careful about when you write a book is know your target audience. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of authors make a mistake, or a lot of hopeful authors make a mistake of trying to sell their book by saying, oh, this book's for everyone. It's got something for everyone. Well, no book has something for everyone, and certainly not a book about recovering an alcoholic marriage. But there are two pretty specific target audiences for our book. The first one is high-functioning alcoholics that are considering sobriety. Now, if if your alcoholic situation is such that you you know, you've had this awful rock bottom where you've lost your family, you've lost every penny you've ever made, you've lived in the gutter for 10 years, you know, you've you've almost died a hundred times. This book probably isn't for you because I didn't live that experience and so I, I can't connect with it and you probably won't connect with my story. So we want to be honest about this. This is for high-functioning alcoholics who have held it together by their fingernails for the most part kept their situation private. Maybe some family members know, but the whole world doesn't know. And it's for those people that are either in early sobriety or are considering sobriety or that need to consider sobriety, whether they know it or not. So that's one of the target audiences. The other target audience is anyone who's in an alcoholic relationship. And that can be parents of an adult child who's an alcoholic. That can be the children of you know an adult child whose parents are an alcoholic it can be cousins brothers whatever but mostly it is for the spouse of an alcoholic that's the main target so high functioning alcoholics and people in an alcoholic relationship and the intersection of those two is really the sweet spot so if you are the high-functioning alcoholic who is either in sobriety or considering sobriety or needs to consider sobriety, and you are also married, this book is all three sections, because the book is divided into three very specific sections, all three sections are for you. I suppose at some point we should just stop saying this book and we should name it. Yeah. Our book is titled Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. It can be found, you know, at this point... Search for it on Amazon. Search for Sober Evolution. Just all one word. We ran those two together. Sober Evolution. Or the best place to find it is our website, SoberEvolution.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, so we are a .org. SoberEvolution.org. Look for it there, and you can find all the ways to buy it. But so the intersection of those two things, high-functioning alcoholic and also in an alcoholic marriage, this book's really for you. And so the reason we're talking about it on this episode, this will be the first episode that we publish in December, is, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty serious, heavy, sad, frankly, topic. 
when we think about Christmas, but it's also very realistic. And if you've got somebody like that in your life, this would make a great Christmas present. Nothing better than unwrapping that on Christmas morning when you're you're sipping your mimosas and thinking, you know, how am I going to make it through another day? Oh, here's a book about sobriety and recovering my marriage. Maybe you buy it early and you read it in the beginning months of December to kind of help. Oh, good. Buy it early. Buy it early, Sherry. I like that. But I mean to kind of transition in and get some ideas and thoughts and plant the seed, sort of. Well, that's just it. I I sense hesitancy sometimes from the loved ones of alcoholics who say, you know, this book, the first section and the second section are about the alcoholic themselves. So this book isn't really for me. I say two things. The third section is all about recovering your alcoholic marriage. So if you are the loved one of an alcoholic, there's a whole huge part of this book that's for you. And the second thing I say is, if you don't understand the disease, how can you beat it? So reading those first two sections, like you just said, planting the seed, even if you are the loved one of an alcoholic, understanding what your spouse is going through yeah, in like really, you know, detail in with stories to back it up and examples. Yeah, because I never like understood when you would drink and you'd be miserable and then you would drink more. Like I never got any of that. I never understood any of that. Well, now you were good at communicating with me and tried to explain you know but it was always like well why can't you just quit just stop just don't buy beer just don't drink the beer i'm glad you brought that up there's a whole section in the book about the euphoria that most alcoholics feel yeah and i never understood that and you never because you didn't feel that you felt you felt a little little giddy giddy, and then i'd be like oh crap i'm gonna have a terrible hangover tomorrow this is no fun as i'm looking down the barrel of a gun basically or neck of a bottle just didn't do it for you the way it it did for me so we describe that and that's important for the spouse of an alcoholic to understand not you know the alcoholic understands that 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 description in the book isn't for the alcoholic other than for them to resonate to it or with it it's for the loved one to understand so there's a ton in here for if it's your spouse that you're concerned about Don't think that this book isn't for you because it is. So that's the target audience. Now, what what we want to do today is we just want to share a couple sections of the book. We're going to do a little bit of of reading from the book. And, you know, you as the listener can decide if this is something that does or does not seem like a good fit for you. So I'm going to read first. Let's see here. I'm going to read about the rules. The rules of uh, trying to control your drinking. Now this, you know, when I, I, I think even as recently as when I wrote the book, I felt like this was a common practice, but I didn't feel like it was as universal as we now believe it to be just because we've dealt with so many people in alcoholic relationships. We've gotten to the point where, you know, there's just no no questioning that, but that this is, This is something that everybody does. I'm just going to jump on that. One thing from our Echoes of Recovery support group for loved ones of alcoholics. Yes. There are, I have learned that there were rules that the loved one put into place and I had no idea. So at the time of our writing of this book and when we were going through it, I didn't put any rules, but then also rules can apply for the loved one. So... 
I thought, wow, that was pretty insightful. And like, what's an example? So, like, um, you know, no drinking in the house. I would have never said oh, that to you. Yes. Like, or, I mean, the one thing I was I thinking guess, you were saying rules that the loved one followed oh. themselves, but they have imposed rules on the yes, drinker. Imposing yes, imposing yes. rules on the alcoholic. Yes. Yeah. No drinking so, in the house. Yeah. No drinking around me. Right. One of them. Or no drinking around the kids. One of them is if you do drink, because this is someone that's working for sobriety, if you do drink, you got to go away. I don't care where you go for a week. See, a week of sobriety before yeah. you're allowed back in the house. So it's a house rule, but it's like turning it over and the responsibility over to the, the drinker. But I just thought when you were saying rules, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And it was, I can't, I, we didn't put anything like that in, in my side of the story because I didn't even imagine that. The only thing I did was I just stopped buying your mixers. Yeah. That you barely used, but. <laughs> yeah. The color, the food coloring that I would put in the drink so it didn't look like it was just purely booze. Soda. Yeah. So here are some of the rules that I followed for the alcoholic stint of my drinking the last 10 years of my drinking when I knew something was wrong, but I wasn't willing to quit. One of them, I I would only drink on the weekends. A lot of people do this. I'm not going to drink during the weekdays. Now I played soccer in an adult men's league, old guys team thing. On Thursday nights, so I considered the weekend to start on Thursday nights because after yeah. our soccer games, we would go to the bar. Yeah, and you so, worked from home on Fridays, and I went into our bakery in the early morning on Friday, so you definitely weekend up Thursday. Yeah, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday was my 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 four day drinking weekend. <laughs> Your four day <laughs> four day drinking. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, that's a very common rule. So if, if you're familiar, if you're hearing this and you're like, oh yeah, my spouse does that, uh, they're not alone. Uh, liquor is off limits. I, for a long period of time, when I knew something was wrong and this wasn't going well, I would only drink beer or wine. Now, you know, that, that solves nothing. I mean, so many people try that and think, oh, this is the solution. It takes longer to get drunk. Man, I'm getting fatter because I'm drinking so much more beer. It solves absolutely nothing. Counting drinks, that was another one. I would have a certain limit. And I laugh now when I look back, like because I've shared this with people, and it's in the book, that on the weekends that were just normal, we weren't doing anything, we weren't going anywhere, I would limit myself to only six, you know, 6.5% or 7.5% alcohol, <laughs> ABV, uh, IPAs. Only a six-pack. Only a six-pack. Now I think, gosh, that's a lot. But if we were going out with people or we were going to... Then the rules were... Oh, no, then I could have a 12-pack. Oh. But only a 12-pack. If I had that 13th beer, I was breaking my rules. 13 really strong beers. I only laugh now with the, you know, the knowledge of time passed. But at the time, I really thought that was... I'm really restricting myself when I'm only going to drink a 12-pack. Yeah. I'm wondering if like your Saturday and Sundays were hard because you had to space out your six beers over the days. If you didn't work at the bakery on Saturdays and then Sundays you were kind of home. Like, was that stressful? To, to oh, like, I, I planned it out. Like, I'm not going to start until, you know, this time because I, I want to feel a certain way and I know I'm going to stop drinking at this time and I drink a, one beer every half an hour. Yeah, I definitely like planned it out to hit the part of the day that would be the most impactful. Mm. So yeah, it was really stressful. It's always stressful for an alcoholic to 
to worry about there not being enough. Even, even when there's plenty, there's always that worry that it's not going to be enough. I also had the rule of not drinking in the morning. And I love this. I, I put in the book, you know, there are exceptions to not drinking in the morning, of course. You know, we drink mimosas on Christmas. Sometimes we tailgated for football games in the morning. Brunch isn't a brunch without a Bloody Mary. Um, we, Sherry and I and our family, we go to the Indy 500 every year, and you start drinking for that as soon as you're upright from the night before. And, you know, we, when I would take one of the kids to a four-year-old's Christmas, or pardon me, a four-year-old's birthday party on a Saturday morning, there was always a cooler of beer there for all the dads. And skiing. Yeah. Oh, skiing. Yeah, well, you can't not drink while you're getting your ski gear on in the parking lot. Yeah. So, yeah, there's an endless list of reasons to drink in the morning, even though one of my rules was to never drink in the morning. Uh, so sad. <laughs> uh, here's one of my favorites. I'm going to drink a glass of water between every drink that I drink. <laughs> oh, drunk pee all over the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, Aim goes downhill as the night goes on. That never kept me from getting drunk. It just meant me. I spent most of my drunk time talking to myself in the bathroom. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, never drink alone. And I, I wrote in the book, this <laughs> one This one got expensive quickly, so I was constantly making excuses to meet friends out for drinks. So this was a short-lived I was going to say, when was this? I don't remember. I feel like... It was short-lived. It says right here. Yeah. Yeah, if if you're not going to drink alone, then you're going to the bar, and the bar is way more expensive than just having cheap vodka or or beer in your basement. Light beer only. That was that was the hillbilly uh, experiment when I would only drink like Coors Light because it was such a lower uh, percentage of alcohol. But I would drink like a thirty pack of Coors Light. <laughs> On my own. And I bet you spent more time in the bathroom with oh, that one too, yeah. right? That's the, that is the like exact water. same thing as the water between it's drinks. Like mixing your IPA and water, right? I could have done that, yeah. Whew, that was that was a complete disaster as well. But I so I want to read, so at the end of the list of the rules, I want to read a section from the book. There are a few there are a few aspects of alcohol abuse that have transcended in my mind based on the stories of so many others into cold, hard, indisputable facts. Here's one that can save you years of agony, but only if you're in a mental and emotional position to listen. If you've started putting rules around your drinking in an effort to exert control, you've crossed the invisible line into addiction, and there's no going back. Sobriety is your only chance at a peaceful and happy life. That's harsh, I know. I sound like an arrogant asshole. I know that too. You can spit and claw and scoff and argue all you want. That, my friend is a fact of drinking life, and there is no way of getting around it. If you're trying to control your drinking with rules, you have three options. Stop drinking now, get help, find recovery, and save your life. Option number two is stop drinking later after wasting another huge chunk of your life because you think you can do the impossible. You risk total destruction. Or option number three is to drink yourself to death. So I know that that's very kind of definitive and it sounds, again, like I said, it sounds really arrogant, but we've just talked with so many people who are in such similar situations to ours at this point. I mean, every single conversation I have with somebody that's seeking help for sobriety, they start talking about the rules. You know, I tried this for a while and I swore off hurt alcohol and I only drink wine and it, it's universal. It's just, it's part of alcoholism. And the 
ways to end things are universal as well. You can stop now, you can stop later and take your chances with whatever bad stuff's going to happen while you're trying to control the uncontrollable or you can drink yourself to death. So that's part of, you know, that's what's in our book in the first section when we're talking about what it was like to become more or less to become an alcoholic and the, you know, the pain that I went through and the pain that you witnessed. The next section I want to share, Sherry, is talking about our arguments. And so you're going to, you know, you and I worked on the book together. It's our story, but it is written from my point of view. So you're going to read this section, but even when you say the word me or I, it's referring Matt to Matt. Okay. Sorry if that's confusing. So yeah. Hand the book over to you. Mm. Arguments. You get to read about arguments, aren't you? Did we have arguments? Did we have arguments? I feel like it was just one long argument a lot of times. Yeah. Okay. Um, So we drank. I just want to say this real quick. Mm -hmm. As Sherry was preparing to read, she started to like bend the book open a little more. And along the lines of you don't make much money selling books, I'm sitting here going, uh, we're going to oh, sell that to somebody. Yes. Don't break the spine on that. That's that's going in somebody's living room someday. Be gentle with that Be thing. Gentle. That's why I wrote on Post-it notes and I didn't write on the book. Okay. okay we sorry. don't even have our own copy to mark up. Well, I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere. we do. But... Yeah, I had it by my bedside table for a while. Okay. Um, so we drank. Sometimes just me, but often both of us on the weekends. We got into meaningless arguments over insensitive comments or unimportant disagreements. Fought like our survival depended on victory over our life partner and fumed for hours and even days sometimes. At the worst of times, we spent entire nights locked in battle while I continued to refuel along the way, of course. There was no room for compassion or understanding. The alcohol squeezed that right out of us. My intoxicated mind was fixated on the black and white of every issue with no perception of any sort of gray area. Once wounded by my refusal to compromise, barbed assertions and insults, Sherry unleashed her pain back on me. She could give as good as she got, leaving us locked in relentless circular battles. Don't misunderstand, I'm not blaming Sherry for her retaliation. Vicious as it could be sometimes. The blame for our constant disagreements lies squarely on my shoulders and on the demon in the bottle that I welcomed into our lives. Sherry was simply defending herself and she learned through painful experience that the best defense was offense. Looking back, that part defies rational explanation is that defies the rational explanation that I could ever make to the connection between the alcohol and our inability to get along. I love Sherry and she loved me, but whenever we were together, the potential for conflict was ever-present. The only other two things that were constantly around were our tempers, was when our tempers boiled over were booze and our cat, and Bagheera wasn't fessing up to starting anything. I forgot that you added the cat, but... Do you blame the cat? No, I never blamed the cat. No? I know you'd like to blame the cat. Not really. Not really. There are two really important things from that section, in my opinion. You talk, or you read about how everything was very black and white. Mm 
So if you, as as a listener to this podcast, if you feel mm-hmm. like every argument has to have a winner and a loser, you're either right or you're wrong. We're not both right. We're not both wrong. There's just no compromise. Then that is a very that's very indicative of an alcoholic argument. It's just like a battle to the death. And then the other, at, toward the end of that, you read about how I couldn't make a connection between my drinking and the arguments. And that is so true. I just, I didn't, I didn't see it. Until, until it was everything, I, I didn't believe it was involved at all. Yeah, I mean, because your drinking changed me. And so then I became more, like, I became more of this awful person that you saw but really, it wasn't because I was an awful person. It was because your drinking was affecting me and was affecting our relationship and our life and just saturated everything. So it just made... And, and I didn't know how at that point, because I hadn't like tried to educate myself, I didn't know how I was being changed and warped and um, into this person that I didn't want to become. Did you... when when? Everything was so black and white for me. There had to be a wrong and there had to be a right and there had to be someone to blame. Did you feel that way as well? No, because I, I could see the gray. I could see that there was a world of gray, that there was a world of... Like, I felt like when we talk about compromise now, I feel so much better. Compromise in the past was somebody had to give in. There couldn't be a joint decision. It was either your way or my way. And that's how you kind of viewed everything. Yeah. And And it would be so hard. Like, there could never be... Oh, well, when I'm working at the bakery, I can clean the whatever my way. But if you were there, you know, and you saw me cleaning it the way that I knew how to clean this, you know, piece of equipment or something, if it wasn't your way, it had to be an argument. Yeah. It had to be, there was, there was a compromise was that the compromise was somebody had to give in to whoever's way. Yeah. So that's it wasn't, not really it wasn't compromise at all. at all. That's why I think even now when... When I think about compromise, I still like get like, oh, it just compromise just means somebody has to give in. There Hmm. is no working together. Hmm. And or like if, you know, like, I don't know, silly things like the kids, the kids when they were little chewing gum, you know, like that was an argument in one of the car trips or on the plane. I gave them gum because the ears popping and they weren't babies with pacifiers and it was hard to keep them we didn't want to fill them up with water because one of them was potty training and so i'm like here chew some gum and you were like you don't know how much gum i chewed it was almost an addiction in high school i don't want our kids chewing <laughs> so gum I was, yeah. I was actively an alcoholic but i was worried about the gum yeah. addiction she were like i remember oh it was God, so ridiculous hilarious. it was so ridiculous because it was like so now like i just remember like i was like well what's the big deal they chew gum every once in a while you just do it every once in a while well, you acted like they're going to chew gum and they're going to have to chew gum every waking moment of their life. And I was like, this is just twisted. That is pretty twisted. So it is just not, there was just no compromise. There was no gray. There was no sometimes or this is a special occasion. It was either. And we always kind of tease you, Matt. Like once it, you do something, it becomes tradition. It's it's funny that I've fessed up about all of this bad drinking behavior and the awful things I've said and done and the amount I've consumed and passing out and all of this this stuff and that doesn't even phase me anymore but I get really embarrassed when you talk about like stupid parenting things that I <laughs> sorry like flat no it's fine but it's I'm just sitting over here like blushing and feeling <laughs> awful you actually are your cheeks are red <laughs> It's pretty funny. Uh, about I mean, but it is kind of silly. Gum. 
Well, it's really about, silly. It's but ridiculous. don't you think about like how your mind is so twisted and you're trying to defend your position? Because if you're defending your position on everything, you're holding up you have this like um I don't know, not inflated ego, but you have this like prophecy to feel like, see, I was right. Now they're chewing gum all the time. Well you I know? think I think when you talk about it's when we talk about how it's so black and white during active alcoholism, I think there's so much shame involved with over drinking that you spend so much time knowing you're wrong, even when you're not willing to admit that it's an addiction and that you need to quit. You still have these times where you wake up and you're like, oh, I overdid it last night. God, I don't remember what happened after 10 o'clock and God knows what I said. You spend so much time in shame that you're you're trying to make sure everything else in your life is a win because those feel like a loss. Yeah. So whereas now, you know, you, you make parenting decisions all the time, Sherry, that I question internally. And I don't say anything about them because it's not important. Your way is probably better than mine. So why don't I just keep my mouth shut? And even if even if it's not, it's not going to hurt anything. So it becomes not my place. And I recognize that it's not my place to say anything. It's it's just fine the way you're doing it, for instance. But but when I was actively drinking, that that thought just never crossed my mind. It yeah. was it was I'm wrong in all these other ways. So I got to be right in these yeah. these ways and I'm going to fight to the death to prove that I'm right. Yeah, one of our children are a little bit harder than the others and the way that always was just a constant argument between you and I on One of our dis- children was harder? Harder, like oh, harder, harder to, to parents. Parent. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, and, and our, that was a constant argument to the point where I didn't want to discipline him or say anything to him around you when you were drinking because I didn't, and then you always wanted to tell me how to parent him because you thought that it was right. And, and maybe going a little bit harsher and tougher and being more firm for him would have worked, but that wasn't my parenting style per se. So now, like, you just listen when I lament about something that happened and... But yeah, that was a constant battle. Yeah. Between us because you just wanted to prove that you were right and you wanted to see the results of but then that would have made me feel so bad because it was going against my parenting. Yeah, so if way. if our listeners are if you're embroiled in this, if you if you're in a relationship where you feel like every disagreement's a fight to the death, that is a strong indicator that you're in an alcoholic relationship. And it doesn't have to be that way, and there is a way out. And so this book is for you. If if you share that sentiment, this book is for you. The whole thing, not just that section, the whole thing. <coughs> the next thing we want to talk about, again, we just kind of went through and picked out some highlights from the book. We can't read the whole thing. Well, we could, but no one would probably listen to it. But the next thing we wanted to talk about was the second section of the book is about my recovery. And my recovery is non-traditional. And rather than just pick a little excerpt to read, I thought I would just talk about the things that I did. I I wasn't going to go to AA for any reason. I thought AA was a bunch of sad sacks sitting on cold metal folding chairs in a damp church basement and drinking bad coffee and smoking cigarettes and eating donuts and whining to each other about their terrible lot in life. And I just thought, that is not me. Those are not my people and I'm not going to do that. I've since learned Otherwise, about Alcoholics Anonymous, I still have things about the AA philosophy that I don't agree with, and that's 
detailed in the book in a non-AA bashing way, but in a, I think, a kind of, I think, level-headed way of, of analyzing the AA concepts. But so my way to sobriety, I've never been to an AA meeting still now, four years in sobriety. I've never even been out of curiosity. So my way is non-traditional. I, I did things like, you know, the first thing was I, I read, I read every night, like during the, what we call the witching hour, the time when I would normally have poured a drink. I sat down and I read, I read about neurochemistry and biology and what's going on. How is alcohol affecting our bodies and brains? But I mostly read memoir. I read the stories of other alcoholics who had come before me and I connected and connection is so important in alcoholism recovery. I connected with the people who wrote those stories. So here there are a dozen or so people out there that I've read their stories. And to me, they are as close as family and they don't even know who I am, but their stories were so important to me. And that was a big part of it. You know, another, another chapter in the book is dedicated to the brain chemistry of addiction. It's so important that we understand how the neurotransmitters work, the neurotransmitters that we are harming when we drink heavily. We learn about rewiring our subconscious minds. So that's all stuff that I had to learn, and that's all stuff that's in our book. Recovery nutrition, addiction nutrition is another huge piece. There's a whole chapter dedicated to that in the book. We talk about blood sugar regulation. We talk about eating foods that regenerate the pleasure neurotransmitters. Like, you know, everyone knows what dopamine is now. Dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and GABA. These are all really important for us to feel good, feel good about ourselves, feel pleasure. And when the ability for those to be flowing through our brain naturally gets taken away by alcohol, we need to eat the right foods to regenerate those those chemicals, those brain chemicals, so that we can feel good again. So again, there's a there's a whole chapter devoted to that in the middle section of the book. There's a lot that we where we talk about patience, rebuilding our sobriety muscles. You know, when I talk about patience, it takes a year at a, kind of at a minimum to start to feel good after you've stopped drinking if you're an alcoholic. And that seems like such a long period of time, but there you know this is a devastating disease think about if if you if you had a motorcycle accident and you broke bones throughout your body and you had all this road rash you wouldn't be shocked if it was going to take you a year to recover from that well this is not dissimilar this is a serious issue and in a year you know a year i say at the minimum that's when you start to feel better there's still a lot of work to do after a year but but learning patience is so hard i know when i was an alcoholic and I would quit drinking. I just wanted it to be done. I, I wanted to like wipe my hands clean of alcohol and there, I'm fine. I don't drink anymore. But we just don't understand the amount of damage that's done to our brain that has to be healed. And so that's why, again, I say this book is for the alcoholic in who's considering sobriety or who is in early sobriety or who needs to find sobriety. But it's also for the loved ones so they can understand what that process of the year looks like. What was that like for you, Sherry? Because I know I know by that point you were so sick of alcohol, alcoholism, me talking about alcohol and talking about alcoholism, the, the concept of my recovery taking a long period of time, you just you didn't even want to think about it or be involved with it, did you? Um, yeah, not I mean, I wanted to keep you sober, that's for sure. 
But you're right, I was so over... I feel like our lives had just been 20 years of dealing with alcohol and everything was revolved around alcohol that I didn't want to hear about it. And I kind of just left you alone a little bit to do your own recovery because we had gone down the path of you working to fight for sobriety and talking to me every day about it or every other day. Because you had had, you know, a few longer stints of sobriety that this time I was like, man, I'm done. I don't want to hear what you're doing. I don't want to know what you're doing. I mean, I kind of was a little bit engaged a little bit, but you didn't talk to me about your feelings. You didn't talk to me about what you were reading because I think you understood too that I was just done with dealing with you and it was your time that you needed to do this. And... Well, and you having that attitude actually kind of helped me because that's kind of a detachment attitude. I didn't know it was detachment. I guess I just felt like I was just filled filled to the gills with just dealing with you. And I just was like, you got to do this. You but, know? but in earlier attempts at sobriety, I had said things. I mean, I said this to you many times. I said, I quit drinking for you, Sherry. What more do you want from me? Mm-hmm. And that's a clear indication that you're not going to make it in sobriety because you're quitting for somebody else. You're quitting for your spouse. You'll only make it when you you yourself are in enough pain that you quit drinking for yourself. Yeah. And so when you would act disinterested, if I did want to read to you something I had read from a book or share with you something I had learned, when you acted disinterested, well, not acted, when you were disinterested because you had just heard it all so many times before and you didn't have any bandwidth left for it, that really put it on me. Like, look, you either do it for yourself or you don't do it, but she doesn't give a rip. Yeah. That was helpful to me. That detachment was helpful to me. And I had no idea because I hadn't been seeking any sort of information or guidance from myself because I had had reached out like many, not reached out, but researched and did a little bit of stuff many years before, but I just didn't even know where to begin. And I knew that because of your still wanting to keep it private, I knew that there was no place I could really go and I was worried and... So I didn't know anything about detachment. I didn't realize like the codependent part of the relationship. So I just knew I was over it and I was done. And I was like, you're just going to have to deal with it. I mean, I wouldn't say it. And I wasn't like if you found something really interesting, you know, um, and you shared it with me, it, you know, I, I didn't mind. But it couldn't be an everyday thing. I couldn't be your counselor. I couldn't be your your community of alcoholics anymore. Yeah. I couldn't be the only one that you talked to because it was just too much because it had happened too many times. So, Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about how how I wanted to keep it private at that point. Another section or another chapter in the middle section of the book is all about how eventually we learned how important it was to recover out loud and to be to be loud and proud about it. For me. That meant I sent emails to everyone I had an email address for, and I posted on social media, even though I sucked at social media and didn't know anything about it. But I just told everyone who would listen that I was a high-functioning alcoholic in in sobriety. I was a year sober at the time when I did that. And that turned out to be just a huge blessing. And I know for a lot of people who are still drinking or who are new into sobriety, the thought of doing that is, it's just incomprehensible yeah to that level i mean i think even just people that are telling their maybe their extended family 
at the holidays coming up when yeah. they're not drinking. They're saying, oh, you know what? I've been a high-functioning alcoholic for many years. I mean, that would scare the bejeevas out of them. Oh, like, I, had, I, I had that conversation a couple of times just this week about, you know, I, I'm going to be around family now. What what do I even say? And and the person in both cases said to me, I know I know that sounds ridiculous. You, I, all I, I need to just say I'm not drinking, but how do I say I'm not drinking? And it does. When you're the one who's in that position, it sounds ridiculous. And you realize that, but it's not ridiculous. There's so much stress and pressure and stigma and uh, just shame involved with admitting to the people that we love that we're not drinking anymore. Right. I mean, without even saying, you know, I'm an alcoholic, just saying I'm not exactly. drinking. I just remember all the excuses that you gave. You should have put a chapter in there, all the excuses that I gave for the times I wasn't drinking. It, it is in here. I did put in here you about did. the times. <laughs> the, the, I mean, I, I am not a liar. I don't like to lie. Right. But I do think it's okay to, <laughs> to say to somebody, if you're in this high-pressure-filled situation where everyone around you is used to you drinking and for the first time ever you're not drinking and people ask you why, I think it's fine to say, oh, I've got to go to the airport to pick up my cousin later or I've got a big project, I've got a big presentation at work in the morning or I'm on antibiotics. Antibiotics and exercise. I want to see if I'm going to lose weight. How much weight I'm going to lose by not drinking for, um, you know, two weeks or a month or... I fully endorse that. Until... The person is ready to come out. And again, yeah. for me, it was a year into my sobriety. But once I did, it was life-changing. It was it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. It People say to me all the time, oh, it must feel good to help other people. That's not what Recovering Out Loud is all about. I mean, yes, it feels good to help other people. But it, it solidifies my sobriety in two ways. The first one that's, I think, a little less expected. Certainly, I didn't expect it is the depth of the relationships that you develop with people when you're honest and vulnerable like that. And I'm not even talking about just other alcoholics, although I have some wonderful relationships with other alcoholics. People who are battling anything in their life. It can be a cancer diagnosis or an eating disorder or they're having trouble with their parenting, with their kids. When you are willing to be honest and open and vulnerable the way we have been, other people return the favor and you you get these just deep, wonderful, awesome relationships that that are not available. They weren't available to me when I was an active alcoholic. So that's one of the reasons. The other big reason for recovering out loud is there's no going back. If everyone that you know knows that you're an alcoholic in recovery, there's you know your friends won't drink with you. There's no just changing your mind. And because I did that lots of times, right before I was open about it, I would be sober for some period of time, six months even, and then say, oh, I've decided to start drinking again. And when you haven't explained the situation to anybody, nobody even bats an eye when you start drinking again. So it solidifies your sobriety by coming out and being totally honest. So I just, I couldn't endorse that premise more. And again, it's a whole chapter in the book and it's a big deal. Uh, the next thing we want to talk about is the fact that sobriety f- doesn't fix anything. And again, here we're gonna we're gonna read a little bit, a, ch- a little bit from the book, and explain what that means. When I was drinking, I was absolutely one hundred percent certain that alcohol was not the cause of the problems in our marriage. 
Alcohol could not possibly have been to blame. If I allowed even a sliver of doubt to creep in, if I even gave a momentary nod to the possibility that alcohol was the source of the damage, I would have had to quit. This is a great example of how, with the disease of denial, we alcoholics are lying to ourselves as much as we are deceiving our loved ones. Now, when I did stop drinking, I was absolutely 100% certain that alcohol was the cause of all the problems in our marriage. In early sobriety, I was laser-focused on beating temptation and abstaining from alcohol. I thought that if I accomplished the goal of continued sobriety, all of our relationship problems would vanish and my wife would run eagerly into my arms, full of gratitude for my sacrifice and abundant bliss for the promise of our future together. In both, Sorry. in both of those beliefs, I was unwavering in my conviction that I had it right. And in both of those cases, I could not have been more wrong. Sobriety doesn't fix anything. My wife, Sherry, knew the truth all along. When I was drinking, she understood that the knot my addiction was tying for both of us wouldn't be easily undone. When I stopped drinking, it was more terrifying than relieving for Sherry. She was used to the devil she knew. She had built defense mechanisms, learned to read all the uncomfortable signs of my various levels of inebriation, and developed a strong loathing for every cell in my body. <laughs> Sobriety was the unknown. Not only would it not fix anything, but she would have to learn new ways for us to coexist. Both in active alcoholism and in sobriety, I was always looking for a new way to rekindle romance and have a normal... Oh, it looks like we're going to talk about sex, so I'll stop here. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> we have enough podcasts that talk about sex. Yeah, but, you know, it it's, again, back to that black and white. When I was drinking, alcohol is not the problem. It's that you're a bitch, Sherry, or... You know, you don't understand, or you don't do it my way. You let the kids chew gum. It's all <laughs> it's all your fault. And then when I quit drinking, everything is the alcohol's fault. Now, I am a believer that alcohol is to blame for all of this mess. No question but about it, that. But it's a mess. It leaves a mess it, behind. It, it leaves, leaves carnage and that so, you have to go through. So the alcohol going away does not, in and of itself, fix anything. And so this, the part I just read was from the third section of the book, the section that's about the recovery of the marriage. And so, again, whether you are uh, the alcoholic that needs to quit or has tried to quit or is trying to quit or the loved one, this is really, really important stuff to understand because I will tell anyone that recovery from alcoholism is the second hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Recovering our marriage was much harder and Part of the reason it was so much harder was I thought sobriety was going to fix everything. And so when it didn't, I was just shocked and left, you know, flabbergasted. Like, what do we do now? And I think you felt that way, too. And I know a lot of our listeners and a lot of the people that seek us out and and join either just listen to this podcast or also join our group Echoes of Recovery. The reason they're there is in some cases because their loved one has quit drinking and nothing's gotten better. And they are, you know, confused is the first word that comes to mind, right? Mm -hmm. They're more than that. They're angry. They're frustrated. They're at the end of their rope. They're all of that stuff. But the, it starts with confusion. The alcohol is gone. Why isn't it better? Yeah. Just doesn't work that way. So this section of the book explains that in, in a great deal of detail. We've mentioned Echoes of Recovery twice now. If you are interested, if you are the loved one of an alcoholic, we encourage you to join us and you can check out more information about Echoes of Recovery at echoesofrecovery.com, E-C-H-O-E-S, 
of recovery.com. And there's all kinds of connection, shared stories, lots of healing, lots of love. It's really, it's a great group. I couldn't be more excited to be a part of it than I am. I'm so happy with how this is going and the people that have joined us in Echoes. So check it out if you are the loved one of an alcoholic. The last section that we want to talk about, uh, the last part of the book we want to talk about is again in that third section. And it's about it's about healing the wounds of an alcoholic relationship. So this is once the alcohol is gone from the relationship, the steps that need to be taken. And rather than just read an excerpt, Sherry and I are going to, we're just going to talk about the, the kind of highlights, the, the steps that need to be taken to recover the marriage. And so, Sherry, what's the first topic that you see there in that chapter? Well, it's resentments. Resentments. I mean, you can't just stop drinking and all your problems go away. Look at all that has happened before you quit drinking. So, resentment. So is resentment just about an apology? Like um, fixing a resentment, is it just about an apology? No, no. And why not? Because an apology, we we as the loved ones have heard apologies over and over and over and over again, most of us. Um, so it's not an apology saying I'm sorry. I mean, that's nice if it is also allowed to be explained and communicated by the loved one to the alcoholic to say, this is how I was really feeling. This is what was really going on. This is how it affected A, B, and C parts of our life. Like, there there are some big traumatic things that had happened between you and I, and sometimes the kids heard, and so I just really needed you to fully understand. And it didn't happen, like, early on in your sobriety. I mean, I think we tried, but I just felt like it wasn't being listened to and understood and appreciated by you enough. Yeah, when I was so, busy 100% focused on sobriety, I didn't have any room left on my plate to deal with the resentments and listen to truly how it felt for you. And I think that's why the amends process is so ineffective. The traditional AA amends process is so ineffective when it comes to relationship recovery because for me just to apologize to you again for something that I had already apologized about many times just so badly missed the mark well for one i want to say i'm not trying to like jump in on you but the amends process is for the alcoholic only right. they have this list of these are the things i did they're not willing to hear the other side of it resentment is about what the other side of it is like this is what happened this is what really took place and you need to have ownership of this. You need to understand my feelings. And you need to help carry the burden. And you need to know that these are the deep, dark, ugly secrets that I carry around in my heart. That's right. So that's why, I mean, I think there's I, the amends process. It's, and it's too early. It's too early in the recovery, I think, for the alcoholic to really absorb and understand what that is meant to do. That's a good distinction, Cherry. The AA amends process is for the alcoholic, not for the loved one necessarily. I think that they think it provides relief to the alcohol to the loved one, but in many of the cases with which we're familiar, it actually just frustrates the loved one of the alcoholic. Like, oh, 
You said you're sorry, so now it's over. We can wipe the slate clean. We never have to talk about it again. Well, what about all this pain I'm still in? Right. And sometimes the amends process goes to reach out to people that you're not close in connection with. And yeah. you and you haven't been you haven't been invited to come and share your amends. Like this is this is then reciprocating, you know, this is you need to sit down and listen to my side of it. Yeah. So I it's like the reverse of the amends process. I like the way you, you described it. It's sharing the burden. So for, for our case specifically, when I sat and listened to the pain that you were in, and, and it wasn't just about me getting to the point where I could say I'm sorry as fast as I could so that we could yeah. move on and get it over with, and really listened and absorbed how much trouble I had caused, that the burden shifted from just squarely on your shoulders, the burden of that pain, to both of our shoulders, and we shared it. And that was huge in our recovery. Well, um, I guess like just kind of a visual that popped into my head was like, and it can't be too early because then you don't want to feel like you're beating up on the person who's going through sobriety. They don't want, you shouldn't be accepting just a quick apology. They should be like able to sit with the uncomfortness of what happened and what was told almost like stewing in it. A little bit. Uncomfortness? <laughs> I've, I've, I become our, I've become our middle boy. He just makes up words. I love it. Your uncomfortableness of like... Discomfort. Discomfort. There it is. No, I like uncomfortness. I haven't, I haven't, had, I haven't had any like caffeine this morning and I'm a little tired, I guess. No, it's good. But, you know, anyway, kind of stewing in it and really like absorbing it and understanding it. Yeah. So. Absolutely. What's the, what's the next part of the process? Well... Because of being a mother, and I know we thought we kept our kids, you know, completely out of it. There were some times that they heard and knew what was going on. So, along with the resentments was, like, the impact it had on our kids. So, we had... I don't think it really matters how old your kids are. Your kids are a part of your family and a part of your, you know, intimate family life. So talking over with what happened with the kids. This one's really important and it it gets glossed over a lot because of exactly what you said, Sherry, that people think that they've done a good job of protecting their kids from the turmoil. We only argued late at night when they were asleep and or we went to a private room when we were going to argue and for the most part I didn't pass out in front of the kids although I drank in front of the kids. So we think we've, we're protecting from... but. Kids pick up so much. They are so intuitive. And whether they admit it or not when they're older, like when they're teenagers, whether they admit caring at all what we have to say or do, they do. They absorb it. They just absorb it. And so we talk to people all the time who who think their kids are fine and don't realize, no, you've actually got to address this head on with the kids and explain you know, why was daddy acting that way? And even probably in many cases, more importantly, why did daddy's behavior make mommy feel the way she did and mm-hmm. react the way she did? Well, because I think codependency is a learned behavior, right? And so you can pass that yeah, down to your kids. Point. So as I've learned, like you can totally transfer that. Or you make the kids question like, why is there always so much tension in the house? Yeah, they can you know? just feel that they tension feel whether it. they it's hear like the argument or not. Buzzing of electricity sound through it. It's just even if they don't see the drinking taking place, <clears throat> they can they can feel that something's off, something's mm-hmm. wrong. Yeah. 
And it has lasting impacts on them if it's not addressed. Right. Even if it is addressed. Yeah. But it's got to be addressed. Yeah. What's next in the process of relationship recovery? Trust. Rebuilding that trust, which can't, in our opinion, and in the cases with which we're familiar, can't even begin to take place until the kids have been addressed and the resentments have been addressed. Mm -hmm. Rebuilding trust just doesn't happen until that takes place. And so we talk about how recovery is such a long road and we talk about sobriety recovery for the alcoholic. You know, it takes a year minimum or not minimum, but a year ish or more until you start to feel good mentally, your pleasure neurotransmitters start firing again. The same thing is true on the relationship recovery side because trust doesn't get rebuilt in a day. In fact, once there's been trust and it's been crushed, it's harder to rebuild than if than than if it was a brand new relationship starting from scratch. Yeah. Well, and you also have to like a way you can rebuild trust and it's kind of like which would come first, having a little bit more trust that you can say things to your um, partner and them not, you know, throw it back up in your face later on. So this trust and resentment kind of go hand in hand. So both sides have to be able to kind of stand on the edge during the resentment to say, this is really how I'm feeling and trust their own feelings and trust that they're going to be able to share them and that they're not and be vulnerable and not be attacked later on by their partner. So it's a, the resentment practice is a good trust building practice as well. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. All I can think of is that I, I, trusted you with my opinion about gum chewing and, <laughs> and now my vulnerability is being well i knew that crushed <laughs> i knew you had a moderation issue so i wasn't gonna listen to you <laughs> but no i'm i shouldn't be making jokes i'm 100 percent with you you do have to be willing to be vulnerable and have that vulnerability be rewarded by your your spouse mm-hmm. in order to build trust and that is a long process because you, you just you've got defense mechanisms, and both sides do, and not just reverting to your foxhole and and you know following the signals of your defense mechanisms. It's yeah. really hard and takes a long time. It takes a long time, and it takes a lot of patience. Which is the next topic, patience isn't it? Patience is the next topic. Yes. So those two it's tie in together. Trust doesn't get built without patience. Yeah. But the whole process the takes whole process, patience. Yeah. People. It's... I mean, I feel so bad for people when they turn the corner, like when the alcoholic finally gets it and realizes, okay, sobriety's not going to fix anything. I got work to do. We got to go through these resentments. We got to build this trust. And then they want it, you know, the, the loved one often wants it to be better, like tomorrow. It it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if it does. Is it worth it to have the patience and to work through it? Absolutely. Yeah. Our relationship is stronger and better now than it's ever been. I think this was the very best Thanksgiving I've ever had in my entire life. Oh my. The one we just had. Goodness. Yeah. Wow. I would agree though. Yeah. It was pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was the... Like even up in, you know, like a year ago Thanksgiving, like you probably could have said something. I could have taken it wrong. Yeah. could have gotten a little meh, you know. Yeah. So it definitely is worth the patience, but I know a lot of us don't. And also like... You have to have patience because other people's process of recovery isn't going to be what you think it's going to be. It's going to be on their own time frame. Yeah. So. 
So you're not only being patient with the way you feel, you're being patient with the reactions of the other person because they're on a different time scale. Yeah. Oh, so frustrating and confusing and convoluted. Yeah. So the only solution is patience. You can't beat them into submission to do it your way. That's what you tried during active alcoholism and it won't work in sobriety either. Yeah. I think this Thanksgiving was the best because of the apple cranberry pie you made. (laughs) That thing was money. Yeah, no pumpkin, no pumpkin cheesecake. I did something different. Apple cranberry pie. It was really good. Yeah. Um, But the last... Had a little crumb coating on it. Yeah. Like brown sugar. And I don't... Yeah, you don't do sugar. sugar, yeah. Well, it's bad for my neurotransmitters. That's right. I follow my <laughs> recovery diet mostly, but I did not yesterday. Yeah. Well, splurging every once in a while I think is okay. Uh, as like long for as it's eating, on you know. Cranberry apple. Yeah. Crumb make, coating pie. Make it worth it. Yeah. Like for those dietitian gurus would be like if you're going to have a I a little treat. I think there's a slice left. There's a couple the slices left. Devoured yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't eat. They don't just go in and eat pie for breakfast. Well, I Even, might. I would. I might. I I probably did eat a lot of pie growing up for breakfast. You know? yeah. Apple pie. I grew up in the Midwest, so there was always like pies and <laughs> cobblers and things from the fresh, yeah, fresh fruit. Um, but the last segment that requires, you know, healing. You seem to have trouble even getting this out. Oh, I know. Intimacy. Yeah. The physical relationship, it won't be what you want it to be uh, overnight or anything even close to overnight. And all those other things have to happen first. You got to deal with the resentments in the kids. You got to build the trust. You got to be patient. And then hopefully the intimacy will come back around. Yeah, because you think about how much of it was ruined, just like your relationship, right? Like the sexual relationship was was damaged too so most of the time well in many cases it's the ultimate expression of vulnerability too so it requires this you know kind of ultimate level of trust intimacy does and the ultimate level of trust takes a long time to reach so it's a huge and important part of the process being married to someone that you don't feel intimacy towards and have intimacy with is dreadful. I know from personal experience, and so do you, Sherry. So it's it's important, and it's worth it, but it takes a lot of time. Sometimes I feel like a broken record talking yeah. about patience with people. But it takes a lot of time to become an alcoholic, right? True that. I mean, they say when a woman has you know gone through pregnancy, don't expect to get your pre-baby body back because you took a long time to develop your pregnancy body so it's going to take a while to you know so kind of with alcoholism yeah but this is longer than nine months yeah yeah definitely for sure because you think about all those years of active alcoholism and how much damage is done you know I wouldn't say it's going to take the equal amount of time yeah Yeah, so if if you've heard us talk about our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage, and something about the subtitle turned you off, like maybe your, your spouse isn't ready for recovery yet, isn't ready for sobriety yet, or you know, you've given up on your marriage and you, you, you're not into recovering your marriage, or 
or your spouse is showing no signs of interest in sobriety. So why would I even think about recovering my marriage yet? If something about it turns you off because you're afraid it's not for you, there's a lot of lessons in this book that can help you. If, if you don't understand it, you can't fix it. And so, again, we look at this as step one in the process. It's not, we're not selling this book to get rich. We're, we're trying to sell this book to get people on the same page with us in the recovery world so that then we can have meaningful conversations, move forward, maybe get together in Echoes of Recovery and take the next necessary steps for your own healing, whether your alcoholic is interested in healing or not. So check it out at SoberEvolution.org or on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Thanks for listening to our rundown of the book. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I am Matt Salis, and we thank you for listening to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast.